Dotnet Rocks episode 858, recorded live Friday, March 15th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's a geek out show. Hey, Richard. Hey, buddy. I love these. I'm glad you do, man. Yeah. I, you know, we were talking before the show, and I know I'm ready to do a show on the subject when I'm a sick of the subject and B my head is aching from the amount of, you know, fact checking and stuff. I've been reading all of these U S government analysis of uh, power generation reports and things to make sure I get all my facts, right? Summer reading. uh, Yeah. It makes your head sore after a while. It's tough. You know, reading real scientist stuff, not easy. Yeah. It's not, uh, especially when you're looking for confirmation of a few facts. Yeah, we'll get into this as we get into the show, because there's a lot of data you have to work with when you start dealing with geothermal. Well, uh, Richard, we're not going to do a uh, Better Know Framework today, but um, somebody's talking to us, aren't they? You know, we get lots of comments on the Geek Out shows, and I do try and answer some of them as we go along, but I grabbed this particular one. This is from 742, the one we did on Smart Grids, and this is a comment from Brian Smithson, who said, "Uh, Good morning, just finished yet another awesome Geek Out, and I had to chime in. Uh, and my first comment was already made by another Brian on the on here that I'm a ham operator. And while I haven't personally experienced the BPL problems, uh, I've been following it with interest. And he's talking about power line interference problems. Power lines amount to being enormous antennas that can receive as well as radiate. As installed, they cannot carry radio frequency content without radiating. Because we were talking about how right. to get the data back from all the smart grid controllers. So I still think just using the internet makes the most sense. But his other comment is an interesting one, which I've seen a few times now. Uh, My second note is about DC in the home. I'm also involved in the automotive industry, so my ears perked up when Richard mentioned 48 volts DC in the home. There's a similar push for 48 volt DC in cars. Yeah. It'd be, and I'm, I've heard, read about this as well. It's the big, you know, you've got a Prius. I do. And it's really hard on a 12 volt battery system to stop an engine and start an engine over and over again. Yep. It's just really stressful. If we could up the voltage, we'd be able to do that much more reliably. Need a few more volts. Yeah, you need a few more volts. Just listen to the electricity show. You'll know why. You need a few more volts. Mm-hmm. So getting 48 volt into DC would be wonderful for many reasons, not the least of which is that our radios, you talk about ham radios, are wired to operate on 12 volt DC for use in cars. And as a result, we have to build 120 volt AC to 12 volt DC power supplies to use our radios in our homes. Mm. If DC came out of the walls, we wouldn't need that at all. Right. So I guess after all these years, Edison was right. Mixed with Westinghouse, AC for long distances, and DC in the home. Yeah, so I guess the problem, though, as we said in that show, is all these, um, you know, electronic devices have different power requirements. When it comes to DC, there isn't any standard, you know, so they like to take as much as they need and no more, and that's why you have all these uh, uh, wall warts. Well, the main thing is flipping from AC to DC as well. It's much easier to drop a voltage uh, down in DC, and it wouldn't be hard to build stuff there. I would like to get rid of wall warts. I think you could actually get to a point where you came up with a decent plug, and it could, and the device could deal with that plug and and pull the right voltage it needed. I mean, we get a long way. Yep. 
Uh, and it's just, you know, there's all kinds of efficiency that come from that, not the least of which being the light bulbs. And, and the fewer transformers, the better. So it's a really interesting thought. It's something that keeps coming up. And uh, goodness knows we're really going to deal with this. Mm-hmm. It's a very tough rock to move. Yeah. You know, try to stick with these plugs. Anyway, Brian, thanks so much for your comment. And I really appreciate folks commenting on the geek outs. You yeah. Know, these are shows that you guys wanted, certainly inspired by my friend Carl. And uh, when we get your feedback, we read it and we respond to it. So I'm going to ship a mug out to Brian Smithson and uh, keep on commenting. If you want to see other geek outs, we're happy to do them and we will ship you out a .NET Rocks mug. All right. So here's what I know about geothermal. My uncle lives in upstate New York and he uh, has a, a geothermal system for heating and cooling his house. The only uh, energy that he expends is the electricity required for the pump. So here's what he's got. He's got two wells, right? Yeah. And basically, he's pumping water through a pipe from one well to the other well and then blowing air over it. Right. And so there's electricity for the pump. There's electricity for the fan. In the winter, because the ground is warmer than the air, you're going to have a warming effect. In the summer, because the ground is cooler than the air, uh, you're going to have a cooling effect. And I was there, and I think I said this, I was there in July, Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, 90-something Fahrenheit out. And he set the thermostat down to 70 degrees, and it was as cool as air conditioning. Oh, for sure. Because essentially it is. You know, if he's using a forced air system, then... All you're doing is using a radiator to cool that air down. It's right. just a question of how far you cool it. And there's a few different geothermal approaches when you talk about geothermal heating. Let's talk, we'll talk about geothermal power later because it's a big subject. But when you talk about heating and cooling systems for houses, A, the name is really, it's not geothermal, right? It's a bad name. Yeah. It's a heat pump. Right. Right. And so there's air-based heat pumps and there are ground-based heat pumps. Mm. And they each have their advantages and disadvantages. The big disadvantage when you talk about ground-based heat pumps is that you have to bury a fairly lengthy uh, line of hose. It's sealed. It's a closed-loop system. Mm -hmm. And you either do it horizontally, which means it's typically 8 feet to 10 feet deep, or if it's a vertical system because you don't have the room to lay out that much pipe, you can get as deep as two or 300 feet Mm -hmm. if you want to just do one loop. But it is a closed loop. And so really, you're just using a ground-source heat pump. Now, the advantage of using ground-source is that the temperature is so consistent. Right. No matter where you go in the world, barring any weird geological formations, at 10 feet underground, the temperature is between 50 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit all year round. Yeah. No matter what. So, and and in some respects, that makes it a much better cooling system than a heating system. Well, I also learned from my uncle that uh, a pellet stove was the most efficient way to heat your home. And so, I have installed one in my house. And uh, it's really true. Um, he just buys 40-pound bags of wood pellets, which are a byproduct of the, you know, the, the carpentry, everything, anything that's built with wood. Right. And uh, those go in a hopper that you fill up with a couple of bags and you run that thing on and you have a, a thermostat. It's about a quarter of the price. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's about a quarter of the price of heating oil. Yeah. Uh, you're, you've got a water-based heating system in your house. It's a hydronic system. That's right. And so essentially you're using the wood to boil it. And what I like about the pellet system is it is waste wood. Yep. Because it's been, you spend some energy forming it into pellets and then you, but it burns really clean. So very clean, the very amount hot. of, uh, 
smoke exhaust is lower than oil. Right. The uh, as long as it's well maintained, like any system, it it burn and and you are consuming waste biomass stuff that would otherwise not be used. Yep. So I, I have a good appreciation for that. And there's a couple, a few, there's a few tricks around geothermal heating, just like any heat pump system. Air based heat pumps. Now you're counting on the exterior air, right. and because it varies so much. Mm. It can be much trickier to make air-based systems work, but they're less expensive than geosystems. You'll often see in geosystems that they do additional heating. So they'll use geothermal heating or you know, really geo heat pump heating to get the water temperature in your hot water tank up to you know 60 degrees Fahrenheit, which is warmer than it came out of the tap. Mm. And then they'll use natural gas or electric or some other system to finish heating it. So you can increase the efficiency of your heating dramatically. Yeah. Right. And same for for house heating. If you want, if the temperature in the ground is only sixty degrees, you can't get your house to be seventy degrees when it's twenty degrees outside. Right, you sure. need some additive heating, yeah. but you end up using less additive heating because you've got that preheat from geothermal. Right, sure. And most heat pump systems, air or geo based, end up having other heaters attached to them as well. This yeah. is part of the system. Uh, and the, the other question, of course, always, there's a few other interesting instances that happens around geothermal heating. I mean, one of this, one of them is uh, the cost of bearing a line. What does it actually take to do that? I have found incidences in doing research here where folks digging down because they didn't have the room. So they were doing a 200 to 300 foot drop hit stuff right. like a natural gas pocket, which normally are better closer to a mile down. But every so often you're going to run into one and that leaks into the system. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 not all soils work well for this. You do need a certain level of stability, mm. uh, a certain kinds of soil. So geo doesn't work everywhere. In fact, you'll find that no matter what you're talking about with geo, it matters what ground you're dealing with. And it, um, the time to return, the upfront cost on geo systems in general is expensive mm. for your home. It takes, you've really got to be able to, um, amortize that cost over many years right. to justify it. Right. It is, they are costly. Drilling holes in grounds or burying big pipes costs money. Yep. And you got to pay for that. Then again, you know, you pay probably upwards of $10,000, $20,000 in some cases for a good, uh, you know, centralized air conditioning system. Yep. You can, but you're going to, and you spend, you can spend that much as well on the geo system and then still need pieces of that. Right. So in the end, it costs more upfront, but with a long-term saving and more importantly, a stable pricing. You are right. not as sensitive to the variations in prices around natural gas or oil, whatever your additive heat system is, because you're not using as much of it. Right. And also it's a simpler system, is it not? I mean, uh, an HVAC system needs to be repaired and replaced and cleaned and all that. Uh, when, especially when you talk about the cooling side. When you yeah. talk about refrigerant cooling, sort of traditional AC, those pumps have a lifespan. Yep. Those coolants do leak. And while they're not as toxic as they used to be, they're not cheap. So it does take more care and feeding. I think the geo heat pump solution for house space cooling, especially in forced air, which I prefer myself, yep. Makes a ton of sense. It does. It's more costly than a traditional refrigerant AC system, but boy, oh boy, it works. And if you can loop it into the other pieces, you can, you're going to make that money back at a period of 10 years. Well, yeah, and, and 10 years, and it'll still keep working, right? Yeah. It's not at 10 years, it explodes. <laughs> 10 years in, now you're actually putting money in your pocket. Yeah. And doing, I think, something better, getting rid of refrigerants. You're using better stuff all around, although there still tends to be glycol and stuff in the closed loop side of geo. Right. Uh, and if that stuff leaks, it is toxic. Yeah. So it does, you know, again, stuff has to be taken care of. Those pipes have a lifespan. Sure. And a responsible person 
not only will stop using them after that time, but will dig them up or at least remove the um, the refrigerant or the, the coolant from it so that it doesn't do damage. Now, you're talking about in an HVAC system or a geosystem? In a geosystem, because you still got glycol in the, in the water, and it is bad for the environment. Really? So in a geothermal system, you still have to put a coolant in the water? Well, you have to put a glycol in the water to make sure it doesn't freeze. Okay. Some sort of antifreeze stuff. And you don't want it to grow mold. There's all kinds of... You can't just use water. So okay. stuff in the water that's bad for you and bad for the environment. And so responsible usage. You talk about a lifespan of the usage. After that 20, 30 years when those pipes are no longer certified, they're too old, mm. a, a responsible person not only will remove all the coolant, but they should go get the pipe too. Well, you know, and in 20, 30 years, if you get that out of an HVAC system, you're replacing the whole thing. Yep. You're not just replacing pipes yeah. and water and glycol. So. Yeah. But I think it's part of our consideration in this yeah. is being responsible, is owning the entire lifespan of the solution for your home. All right. Let's talk geothermal energy. When I think of geothermal energy, I think of places like Iceland and Greenland. Yep. You know, uh, Number one producer of geothermal energy in the world. Would you care to hazard a guess? Uh, I'm going to say either Iceland or Greenland. It's the United States. You're kidding me. The United States produces over three gigawatts of geothermal energy, mostly in California. Now, the important thing to recognize is that represents 0.4% of the total power generated per year in the U.S. So while we're while the U.S. is a big producer, it's not substantive in their overall production. Because worldwide, what, what is it only about 11 gigawatts or yeah, something? Yeah, 10 to 11 gigawatts is about the worldwide production. I mean, what's interesting about it, Iceland has the largest percentage. Yeah. Right? They, they only produce about 600 megawatts of, of geothermal power, but that's like a third of their total power generation. I get it. And New Zealand's got big numbers too. The number two producer is the Philippines, and they, they're at about two gigawatts, and that's over a quarter of the total power that they use, which is I find fascinating. But notice the locations. Well, before we get onto that, well, how does the U.S. where where are these geothermal plants in the U.S.? I don't know about them. Um, Geyser Springs is an area in in California that is very geoactive. Uh -huh. Right, because that's the subduction zone where all the earthquakes and stuff happen, and so it has a it's a thin part in the crust, which gets to the essence of geothermal power. Okay, which is you need to get to a certain temperature in the ground, mm -hmm. right? And temperature goes up as the deeper you go. And typically, when you talk about efficient operating of plants, you're looking for something in the neighborhood of of 350 degrees Fahrenheit is what you need in the ground. And in normal rate of temperature increase, if you just drill anywhere. You need, that's about four miles down. Mm. And that's real. while we've dug deeper pipes, like the petroleum industry digs down five, six, seven, seven miles about the deepest we, they've ever dug. It's pretty mm. darn hot down there. Mm -hmm. And it gets, that's, you're talking tens of millions of dollars to drive a, drill a pipe that deep. And this is even without having a, a hot spring, like, you know, a geyser. Yes. So a geyser has, you know, high temperatures at the surface, but, right. but you're talking about anywhere you can drill down seven, Seven feet, you get, you're getting about 30 degrees Celsius, which is what, Fahrenheit, off the top well, of your head? Yeah, I mean, the, the, when we talk about the geothermal heating, you get that 60 degrees Fahrenheit once you're eight feet below the ground, right? But right. if you need 350 degrees, which we talk about flash steam plants, the most common design, anywhere in the soil, you'll have to get down about four miles. And that's too deep. Yeah. Most geothermal systems today, no more than two miles deep. And it's just plain old-fashioned cost. It is expensive to drill pipes that deep. And you have to drill a minimum of two. Right. And you'll usually drill many more than that. 
You're talking about 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Down seven miles. Uh, four miles. Four miles. Yeah. Four. You'll get normal points. You know, the, the, the crust varies, but the sort of the a- at average crust depths, you'll need to get about four miles to get that temperature. And that's just too costly to do. Now, the original mm-hmm. geothermal power systems, you talk about the early ones that are in places like Italy, New Zealand, Iceland. They had active volcanic areas mm. that did have reliable geysers. Mm. So the water was already in the system, and you're basically putting a pipe over top of it, get using that water to uh, to actually turn a turbine. And that's what's going on in California as well. Uh, no, the dry steam plant, the sort of old design, is just using existing steam sources, and it's not as efficient. That water does run out. You know, it's harder okay. to control because you have to cool the water after you bring it up. Right. Right. It's got to, you've got to get it hot. It's got to be hot enough to turn a turbine. Then you need to cool it back down before it can go back down. And that evaporation process, that cooling process Mm -hmm. is the biggest issue around geothermal power in general. Okay. Is you use up the water. Now, the most common design these days is a system called the flash steam plant. Uh, it just needs hot ground. So in that sense, as long as you've got a thin enough spot in the cross that you can drill a reasonable length pipe. Because anything over two miles, two and a half miles, gets really, really expensive. So you need that right spot. Mm-hmm. Now you're pumping water down, which flashes to steam, comes ripping back up the return pipe, and then that is typically heat exchanged into a separate system. You want, in the early systems, they would use only the primary loop. So you'd have that flash steam come back up, and you'd use that to turn a turbine. The problem is that the when you put water down there, you dissolve stuff in the process. And mm. what comes back up is not clean water. Mm. And so it, it's full of uh, nitrous oxides, various heavy metals that are, are quite toxic, hydrogen, hydrogen sulfides. Mm. Uh, it's nasty, stinky stuff. And it yeah. you know contributes to acid rain. Not that it does a lot just because we don't use it much. Mm. But if we were doing a lot of geothermal, let's say I mean, geothermal's got some huge advantages here, right? This is a self-sustaining system. You don't, you know, we keep underestimating just how many train loads of coal need to go into a coal power plant every day to run it. Right. Right. The, the machine involved in feeding consumables to power systems is huge and here's the system where you're pumping water down it's heating up it's coming back up you're turning a turbine they're quite once the drilling's done these systems are quiet and reliable they run all day all night like there's lots of advantages to geothermal in that respect so are you still talking about a system in which you have to drill down four miles or are you talking about systems where the heat is a little closer to the surface only place you're finding geothermal plants is where the heat's closer to the surface because four miles is too costly Right. So people don't do it. The average seems to be, you know, the, the reality is it's less than two miles for most geothermal systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, they're going to the places where the pipes can be short enough to make it work. Now, does that just mean that if we were going to dig four miles down, we'd have to have a really big pipe to make it worth it so that we could have so much water going through? It's not just the size of the pipe. It's the pressures involved, uh-huh. it, what it takes to drill it. Yeah, you know, it, it, at that point the cost is so high, you're not going to make it back in the amount of power you can consume, you can generate. So it's not that it's not that we don't have the technology to nope. do it. It's that the physics involved are just too stressful on the it's, gear. It's it, it comes right down to cost. Look, the petroleum mm-hmm. industry is routinely digging deeper than that. Yeah, they would prefer not to, but oil is so valuable right. that it's worth the cost, the tens of millions of dollars they spend to drill that deep. 
So when they're drilling for oil that deep, is does that oil come up at 350 degrees? Sometimes hotter. Huh. Yeah, it's part of the challenge. That's very hot oil when it comes up and often comes up under pressure. Controlling that is, that's why they have blowouts. Yeah, right. And, and is that energy harnessed geothermally? They, yeah, there's a lot of interesting systems that go on there of how they use the energy that comes off. You look at a, an oil rig platform and we're off topic here, but it yeah. is cool stuff. And I've read it and studied a lot of this. Okay. The natural gas byproducts, there's all these things that are going on that they generate a lot of their own energy just from the heat they have available to them. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah. They've lots of regenerative stuff going on there. And you understand that generally speaking, power plants, especially in the US are old. I mean, flatly elderly. Right. They are from an era in the 50s and 60s where we did not understand a lot, awful lot of environmental impact. We didn't uh, consider the, we didn't know the issues that we know today. So a lot of the problems we're having today comes from these power plants are simply too old to actually behave in a way we would consider appropriate today in how they use water and how they emit waste and, and in how they actually be efficient. Mm. You know, you, you think about going back to our original electricity show, the transition to electricity, what we were coming from when we were burning coal and peat in our homes and lighting them with gas lamps. Yeah. Like in terms of the ambient pollution we were generating on our existing systems, any kind of electrical generation was cleaner than that. Right. Even the dirtiest of coal plants was cleaner than that. Right. So... You know, we've just kept raising our standards and not necessarily spending the money it takes to keep those standards going on mm -hmm. with all of our power generation mm -hmm. systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm looking at you, Cole. Right. You know, I know you're trying and you're still the number one power plant system for the U.S. The U.S. is the Saudi Arabia of coal. We should do another geek out show on coal because there are some uh, developments with what they call clean coal. Yeah. Yeah, we should talk They're about that. They're trying very hard to do right. You know, there is intent there, but it is costly. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about that. Yep. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Let's, uh, let's, let's jump back to, remember we were talking about geothermal? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> back when we did the geothermal geek out show, you remember that show? Yeah, I remember that. That was cool. <laughs> so there's the well-known design right now that is a good system in the flash steam plants. And so that is pumping water down where it flashes the steam when it gets down there. It comes ripping back up the pipe. It goes through a heat exchanger to a secondary system that also uses steam to then spin turbines very reliably. Okay. Okay. Now, in the earlier systems, they did traditional cooling. So you heat that water up. You've got to cool it enough to be able to pump it back down reliably. Right. And so you use cooling systems. Now, there's a few different ways to go about this. One is to simply build your facility near a river. Yeah. So that you're bringing cold water in from the river, using it for steam, and then pumping it back into the river hot. Killing the fish in the immediate vicinity. Significantly disturbing the ecosystem. Most likely. Going, and remember, 
you you know you are originally we only when we only had only primary loop we were putting stuff into the water that was poisonous as well so then right. we went to a secondary loop system so we're trying to minimize the amount of water right. that we're losing there right. uh, and and minimize the amount of waste so then we say okay well that's bad let's not do that we'll use cooling ponds and cooling towers to mm -hmm. cool the water so we're trying to reuse the water mm -hmm. the challenge is it takes time to cool down and while it's cooling it's evaporating. Mm -hmm. In open systems like this, you'd lose 75% of the water to evaporation. Wow. So you're not actually getting a lot of return anyway. Right. Now, you could speed the process up, but that means using more water. Right. <laughs> to cool it faster. And then you've got to do something with that water as sure, well. Sure, So there is this constant struggle with using water. There's other... The, the term flash steam needs to be looked at closely. You're talking about water suddenly turning to steam when it hits that heat. Yeah. Okay. Think about the consequences of that. Sure. They call it the hydraulic fracture zone for a reason. Yeah, I mean, that's when things break. That's right. And sometimes we have uplift all the way to the surface. Jeez. Sometimes we shatter pipes. Sometimes we cause earthquakes. Small ones, but we cause them. Huh. So there are consequences to getting a geothermal system up and running every time you build a new one as to how that ground is going to tolerate those effects. Mm. And you want to talk about other geek outs, we could go talk about fracking because that's a whole other can of worms when it comes to this kind of behavior. Oh, I can't. You know, I've got a lot to say about that. We have, yeah, no uh, kidding. We have definitely to do one on fracking. So there's a new system starting to come online. These are called the binary cycle plants. Now, they're a little clever. Their big advantage is they can operate at cooler temperatures. So instead of needing 350 degrees out of the ground, they can get down to 150. Hmm. So they're only heating up, they're not even heating the water to boiling. Mm. But then they use a heat exchange system to transfer to the heat to a secondary fluid that isn't just water. It's actually a low temperature boiling fluid. So that it turns to steam at lower temperatures and can spin turbines. Because turbines run best with pressurized steam. Right. Right? And those are all closed loop systems. So they emit very little water, right. very little uh, toxic gases, and they can run at much shorter pipes so they're lower cost. But they haven't done is scaled them particularly well. So this is sort of the the future of geothermal. All these smaller, more efficient systems. Typically, with geothermal systems, you see them generating somewhere between 150 and 300 megawatts per system. You can't get much bigger than that. So this is the size of a small coal plant or a very small nuclear plant. So they it's they don't scale up to gigawatt systems easily. They're not designed for that. It doesn't work well. Right. Uh, but the binary system is interesting in a sense. It's going to be a little more costly to build, but you don't have to drill as much. You have to use these specialized fluids, which have pluses and minuses, but you do get this advantage of you can work in more places, less admission of waste in general. But a lot of the challenges around this just comes down to water consumption. Right. Now, so far geothermal, when I'm, I'm the, the data I've been reading has showed that geothermal is actually much more water efficient than most other power systems. Coal consumes a lot of water. So does nuclear. Right. Lots of water. They talk about uh, in the area of 250 to 300 gallons per megawatt hour generated in nuclear and coal. Wow. You'll use, you know, 250 to 300 gallons of water compared to five gallons of water per megawatt hour for geothermal. Wow. So much less water used up. And this has to be fresh water not necessarily potable water but it can't be salt because salt is so damaging to pipes and you don't really want to pop salt water underground anyway so 
this whole issue, everything about this, I think it's one of the reasons geothermal hasn't really taken off in, in a lot of ways. You know, there's no geothermal in Canada at all. Isn't that funny? Yeah. We, there's actually a, a company that I've been researching here, a Canadian company that makes about 20% of the geothermal plants in the world. They've never made one in Canada. It's crazy. That is crazy. But I think one of the reasons is the best geothermal area in Canada is British Columbia, where I live, because it's right on the Ring of Fire, just like California. What's the Ring of Fire? So the Ring of Fire is this, uh, the Pacific Plate, subducting under the North American Plate and the Asian Plate that creates the huge earthquakes in Japan, mm. all of those volcanoes. You know, there's a string of volcanoes running from where I am here, Baker, all the way down to California. Right. And it's all caused by this giant subduction zone that creates the earthquakes and so forth. Mm. It also means the crust is thin, so geothermal opportunities like they're doing in California and like they could be doing in B.C., Okay. Uh, I think the big reason that BC has just never done geothermal is that we've got so many mountains, we generate most of our power from hydroelectric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't know that we could do a whole show on hydroelectric because the story is pretty simple, but hydroelectric has consequences. Yeah, well, maybe we ought to cover that here. So hydroelectric, obviously, when, you know, any kind of dam or energy from falling water, let's right. call it that. Which seems very ecologically sound, doesn't it? I mean, you are going to make a lake. So right. you're going to flood a bunch of territory, and there's lots of arguments against that. Right. That you, you know, you're damaging terrain, you're destroying habitat. We've got a, there's a big discussion going on in BC right now about an area called Site C up in central eastern British Columbia, which is the, really much in the middle of nowhere. But there are towns where that, that would be flooded by that over a number of years. Right. And it's not like the water goes away, but you're going to substantially reduce the flow of water. I mean, in the end, Dams operate by having water flow past turbines. So you are essentially creating a dam to build up enough water pressure to have that turbine turn steadily. I've seen run of river uh, turbine systems mm -hmm. where they don't dam the whole river, but they actually block a piece of it to back up enough water to keep the water flowing really steadily, consistently, so the turbine will turn reliably. Again, refer back to the electricity show. We talk about turbines need to be turning at a particular speed. And that means the water pressure or steam pressure Has needs to be, to be absolutely consistent yeah. all of the time. And that's why you need a dam in the first place. Right. So, but there's a other consequence and it comes back to this evaporation issue. When you create a lake, that water evaporates. So what used to be a river now has a big lake in it. You actually lose a substantial portion of that water to the air. Mm-hmm. Again, not destroyed, mm -hmm. but it alters the ecosystem, and it isn't available downstream. So as much as they say, well, in the end, once the dam is filled up, will it be the same amount of water flowing down? Not true. Mm. Evaporation is a non-trivial part of the process, and it will impact the total amount of water available downstream long term. Now, does that problem go away the, the larger the water source? Absolutely. The bigger the lake that you make. So they talk about Lake Mead, yeah. which is the dam, the water behind the Hoover Dam, right. losing billions of gallons of water to evaporation. Now, it happens to be in a terrain that is quite dry and hot, so it's a really good evaporation environment. Mm. But it's not just water usage that's drain that's lowering Lake Mead substantially. Right. It's also evaporation. It's a non, not a small piece of the equation here, and it's part of the impact of hydroelectric. Uh, not that I have a lot bad to say about hydroelectric. It works really well. It's very consistent. Uh, it, it doesn't power up and down quickly like most power systems. You want to turn those turbines all the time. It's hard to add new power and take power offline. You know, those are all difficult because of the scale that they run at. Mm. Okay. 
but it really comes down to this water usage issue. Now, one of the things reading so heavily about the water consumption on the cola nuclear side, which I'm sure people are very angry about. And, and in these recent, I'm reading this particular paper from the, the NRLEL from November 2011. So pretty recent stuff. And they're talking about the strength of natural gas as a power generation system because it consumes so little water. Hmm. But I think the real reason that natural gas consumes so little water is that they're much newer design systems. And they've used closed loops so that they don't use up a lot of water in the process. Where most coal plants are 50, 60, 70 years old, and they're doing stuff like run-of-the-river water. They just take water out of the river, use it for the steam, and pump it back into, bunk back in the river with all of the problems that that causes. Now, when uh, during fracking, they're using water to get in chemicals to get the to get the gas out. Yeah, to try and break loose gas and also oil now. They're finding that they, there's oil right. reserves that can be broken free from... You know, normally, when you want to get a gas and oil, you're looking for pockets that have naturally formed and drilling pipes in it to drain it. In fracking, you're creating the pocket. The oil is in the in the uh, the, the crystalline soil. It's not really soil; it's rock. Right. And so you're essentially creating enough pressure to create a pocket so that you can extract that oil and gas. And it turns out, um, recent uh, and we can do some when we talk about fracking. We'll talk about oil, or maybe we even do another geek out show on oil. Because there was uh, just recently the huge discoveries of of oil reserves in the United States. Yes, and uh, using fracking, we found enough oil to to keep us us going a lot longer than we thought we did. It's going to take ten twenty years to actually bring them on the line. But we're talking about not but just getting going, but actually the U.S. being a net oil exporter if they keep using it. But fracking has serious consequences when you pump stuff underground to create these pockets, create that pressure, you have earthquakes and you disturb drinking water beds. Yeah. And, and that's all of these systems is anything that's drilling holes into the ground, you know, they, the geothermal as well until it, you, you don't know for sure what the impact's going to be on the groundwater until you've done it. And that's pretty risky. You know, we right. don't have enough good science to really understand the consequences of fracking, the consequences of geothermal. They're related. These flash steam systems cause earthquakes occasionally. Well, I hope they're doing research on how to do fracking more safely. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that it's even possible because the nature of fracking is fracturing rock, and that's what is causing earthquakes. And I don't think they're, you know, one side of me says they're not creating big earthquakes, they're creating little earthquakes. Yeah. And one could argue we might be able to mitigate big earthquakes by using these techniques to relieve stress on falls. Right. It's a dangerous thing to do because maybe it'll create a big earthquake, but it is an interesting idea to think that big earthquakes are caused by a buildup of tension between the plates. And if we could release that tension routinely, you know, I, I bet the folks in, uh, in Japan would be much happier to have 10, uh, you know, force five earthquakes than one nine. Oh, yeah. You know, if yep. there was a way to get that far. But I don't think we're there yet. We don't understand what we're doing here. Mm. Right now, the oil industry, because of the price of oil, is willing to to develop this technology and honestly take chances with this technology because of the value of the oil. So, uh, you know, in the broad spectrum of uh, ways that we can generate energy, you know, as a grade from, I don't know, A to F, what do you give geothermal? I think I'd give it a B. And, I, and I'll tell you why. I think when you start looking at the binary cycle systems that are lower temperature and smaller scale, as I'm more and more I'm becoming a big believer in let's get rid of these big plants, right. go to smaller plants. Right. 
And binary cycle, because the temperatures are lower, means we don't have to drill these big holes. We're not doing flash steam, right? We're actually just using a little bit of heat, you know, 150 degrees Fahrenheit or so, mm-hmm. deeper than you want to heat your house with, but enough that you can do this exchange system to secondary fluids. It'll make smaller turbine systems, but reliable, that you could build some redundancy. The cost per megawatt hour is part of the challenge. This is going to be more expensive, but everything's going to be more expensive if we start taking in the consequences of pollution and you know other damaging to the environment. Sure. I think geo ends up being worthwhile. Its advantages are the planet's not going to cool down anytime soon. So the can, once you get that system running, it's reliable. It's quiet. It's safe. It can be almost non-emitting. So I think it's a very, the, these modern solutions are worth spending more money on, more time on, and building better versions of it. I think we would do very well by this. So the binary cycle, that's, that's what we need to look at. I think those, that's the most modern design I've found, hmm. and it eliminates an awful lot of the risks for a somewhat more complex and expensive design. But as you mature it, you know, you'll get it working. This idea of getting away from dealing with high temperature steam and using lower temperature steams is a very good idea. Mm, yeah. In fact, it, it's interesting to think about that in terms of any turbine system. Sure. Using less water and lo- using lower temperatures. So that if you have a higher temperature, you can share it amongst more turbines. You know, there's only so many turbines you could turn with for a certain number of of uh, degrees, if I could take those degrees and split them amongst more turbines, I can use less energy to generate more power. Mm. Very cool, Richard. Well, that's where we are, man. I, I don't know that we've covered everything there is to do with geothermal, but I really wanted to dig into it. Yeah. Uh, certainly this issue around fresh water is something that's going to come up again and again, and uh, we're going to have to keep talking about it because the, you know, how much of the drought of last summer was actually water because, you know, you look at where that those droughts were, in the Northeast, and you look at the power generation, old-style power generation that was going on in those areas, all part of the problem. Oh, maybe a correlation there. Yeah. Thanks, man. I always learn something when we do these shows. You bet, buddy. I'm thinking about what we want to do next, and so, of course, I'm going to reach out to the to the listener. We have been approached by some thorium folks. I really want to do, th- you know, I did you read that? That's pretty darn amazing, the thorium nuclear yeah, thorium is very interesting. So, uh, folks, if you're listening to this, if you'd like us to do, uh, I didn't want to just focus on nuclear power for months and months and months, but if you'd like us to do an, another nuclear show uh, around thorium, I, I have an expert who's interested in talking to us. We could do a show on that. I say we do that. Or is it time to get out of power? Should we do some nanotechnology or aerodynamics? No, no, you know what? Let's do that next, I think, and then we'll digress a little. Yeah. It's just too cool to let it hang there. I'm with you. By all means, guys, give us your opinions. Yep. We do these for you. They're 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 fun for us. They're a ton of work, but we're happy to do them. You let us know what you want. We'll keep doing. A ton it. of work for Richard. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes 
in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Dot